This is the ZMAR Podcast. Elite Benefits of America helps small and mid-sized companies with their health insurance programs. And now, your host, Butch ZMAR. Welcome back to the ZMAR Podcast. Um, the first thing I want to roll out with is a, a case study that we recently went through, and I want to talk through some of the planning process because a lot of businesses, especially in the Chicagoland area, because that's the market that we're in, you'll be able to duplicate many of the things that we went through in this scenario. This is a classic case of making changes and, and saving some money in the meantime. I'm going to walk you through a scenario. We're just going to call them ABC Company. We came in right actually during a time where they were trying to look through for ways, innovative ways to cover the control their costs. It's going out of control, less than 100 employees. And they were still on a fully insured, big branded carrier company. I'm not going to get into names, but so they were offering one plan because they kind of grew and it, it was strategic. So they didn't really have any need to offer more plans. A lot of companies will have multiple plan designs inside the portfolio so their employees could actually have choices. And so they based on affordability or maybe coverage type that they like, HMO versus PPO, whatever it might be, there's usually multiple choices. This company only had one. And so we came into picture uh, a couple months before their, their renewal. They were looking for other ideas, other options. So we quoted other options that were too big, high level for them to, to grab right away. So what we end up doing for the first strategy to put in place was to offer additional plans. It was probably a little extreme, but we end up moving from one plan to six plans. But we did that based on strategic movements and uh, on coverage, type of coverage, and networks. And so there were specific reasons for each one. Some people lived in certain areas that were required one network versus another. There was some needs in other areas, such as uh, teaching hospitals or traveling outside the state. So we just put a bigger plan portfolio together. They end up having uh, like 90% of their employee base move to all the other plans. So only 10% actually stayed where they were at. Overall, this actually gave a lot more flexibility for the employees and a lot more choices. Uh, and, and one of the biggest things is you have to engage your employees and allow them to make their own choices. You, uh, it's harder to make it's easy to make choices for your employees because you don't want to get them engaged or involved, but it creates a little bit better retention and ownership if the employees are allowed to make some uh, their own choices. And so 90% of the employees moved, and the, the net result is that the overall savings between the employer cost and the employee cost was about 25%. And that was still on a fully insured platform, uh, which is traditional for most of the big branded carriers. And so 25%, great savings, let's move on. And so they implemented the strategy, everything's going well. We come up for renewal again, and we start the planning process a little bit earlier this time to get actually get uh, ahead of the, the trend of the health insurance cost and have enough time to implement if we decide to make any changes. So we went through a planning process. We talked about quoting. We had to do some underwriting because we were looking at doing something other than a fully insured. Fully insured program, uh, according to Affordable Care Act rates, are not underwritten until you get large enough. Um, and then small employers, which um, they were actually put on initially, where it was still guaranteed approval type, uh, no underwriting whatsoever. So we went through some underwriting process. We talked about, we went through plan designs. With the plan designs, we were actually able to, because the underwriting actually allowed them to get a uh, lower rates just in general. 
But the plan designs were actually designed better than what they were having with the Affordable Care Act compliant plans. What we also did is we, we talked about networks. So we put together a network restricted, and then we also open it up and they can go anywhere they want. Uh, some of that could actually be far-fetched to some people's mindset, but the PPO networks and HMO networks only exist because of contracts with insurance companies. If you eliminate those contracts and allow them to go anywhere they want, then the payments to the provider will be based on a percentage of Medicare. They call it reference-based pricing. Only concern that comes with that is balanced billing, but um, we designed it so that there's a a third-party administrator put in, in place to analyze those claims and make those payments so the employees' end result are not paying them, but it does create um, a little bit more of a dynamic. But just to give you an idea, we're just talking about savings and plan designs here. So the first option we looked at was level-funded, and level-funded just means that we're, lo- we're looking at the self-funded platform, which is basically like any other insurance plan that you want to look at, like commercial insurance, you design, you put it together, they underwrite it based on the risk of the company, you're insured for that particular risk for your individual company. On an Affordable Care Act plan, they're insuring a broad base beyond the scope of one business into certain sections in the state. It's not necessarily by zip code or county, but you will have multiple zip codes in multiple counties into one rating platform. Whereas level funded, it gets a little bit different. They have base premiums that are based on what they think for the area, and then they have underwritten rates, which allows the under uh, underwriter to determine what kind of discounts they provide or if they need to be charged more based on the health risk. And then they, they basically take up that risk, what their anticipated claim is, and divide it by 12 months because that's an annual amount of time. That's what they call level. Instead of it going up and down based on claims, like a true self-funded platform, they just basically make it level. You could get, get access to claim reports. You could have more control at claim time, not necessarily by individual, but from a broad perspective, such as ER visits, how many maternity claims, if there were surgeries, but if they were at an outpatient facility versus inpatient, how many hospital stays. And then it gives you a dollar amount and how many visits. And so you're able to actually look at claim data throughout the year. And then, of course, on the renewal or anniversary date so that you could plan accordingly and make adjustments, maybe educate your employee base or implement a new program to help control that cost. But in this case study that we're talking about here, just going with a traditional level funded with a provider network that most people are recognized with a big logo, they were going to save in this particular small to mid-sized company, you'll have $55,000 worth of savings in this particular situation with that um, opportunity with certain plan designs, also with having control of the cost and going through a little bit of underwriting. And then we also had plan designs from a truly self-funded program. And so there's a little bit more risk that's involved, but what we end up doing in this case to minimize the risk is we did what um, basically made a self-funded program level funded and divide that risk, anticipated risk over 12 months. The same way we did it on the other program, but the only thing that we really did that was different compared to the other example I was just given was that we eliminated the provider network. There is some confusion that can come down to this. There's a lot more details. That'll be a whole nother call. I'm actually working with some of those people to get them on as a guest to talk about some of those balance billing issues, the reference-based pricing idea, uh, so on and so forth. But for right now, you can go anywhere in the country. Everything will be taken care of. The the, the funding pool and the stop loss will actually uh, pay for the claims. It's just going to be renegotiated and contracted out, but certainly a lot more affordable way to do business with for your employees 
And by eliminating the network and allowing them to go other places, they actually drop by another $20,000 worth of savings, bringing their total savings to about $75,000. So just imagine that, having a conversation with um, uh, anybody, any employer, HR, CFO, and you're able to present a plan with less out-of-pocket for the employees, take away any network restrictions, allowing them to go anywhere they, they want. Uh, the overall savings between the employer and the employee was $75,000 a year. This is being done every single day. Sure, certain profiles have to be met, like a three-person small business in Chicago certainly will have a much harder time actually working with these type of programs. Some of them don't start until you're at least 20 employees. Some are actually even higher because of the risk pool. They're trying to scrutinize or at least get enough premium base uh, to offset some of the risk. And so these are many ways that people are saving money in, in healthcare with their employees. So I just want to give those um, this case as an example of what other businesses could go through and potentially save a drastic amount of money on the premiums and implement better coverage for their employees. Now I want to dive into the world of claims. Um, claims can be a big issue and this morning I actually took a phone call from a client that actually walked through it which gave me the idea of actually talking through some of the conversation I had with them just this morning. I always call this blind exposure. It's surprise billing in some cases because you don't know what happens until claim time to find out what you're actually being paid uh, or what you're paying for between what you're paying for in insurance premiums and what rate of return you're going to get on that but also what are you going to play at claims? We've talked about claims before, but I just wanted to go over some of the things that were triggered in the thought over this conversation. We get these bills and we have no idea what we're looking at. And the first thing that I always tell people um, as, a, as a, just an insider tip for you guys is to always cross-reference things for uh, to the explanation of benefits. Some people call them the EOBs. They basically give a breakdown on how the insurance company allocated the claim, whether it was towards a copay or towards a deductible, or if they denied the claim altogether, or if they were even billed. You could go in there and you have an invoice from a provider that says a certain amount and uh, then you go online and you don't see it. This just personally happened to me where we were gonna bill for $2,200. I procrastinated a little bit, tried to do some more research. The explanation of benefits did not indicate this bill uh, whatsoever. So I decided to pay a phone call to the provider and say, hey, what's going on here? Because the insurance company has no idea. Well, in this case, it worked out to my favor because I got busy and didn't make the phone calls right away that uh, during that time frame, they said that they realized that they made the mistake during the time since they made the invoice. And so they actually submitted it back to the insurance company for reconciliation. There was no bill due at this moment. They're waiting for the process through the insurance company. The biggest thing is just making sure that it gets processed through the insurance company so you're not being billed extra. And so even if that bill came comes back and says, oh yeah, you still owe this money, well, that's fine, but at least the insurance company recognized it and I could see if it was an actually a covered item or not. Um, and if I need to go to bat for it um, or pay the bill. And so in this case, um, it looks like it's going to be reconciled with the insurance company. It would probably go down in my gut if I had a guess. But but again, if I didn't cross-reference that, I, I would have paid the, the bill and I would have overpaid. And then it's up to me to try to get my money back if things got reallocated. The other thing is misbilling. And so what I, what I mean by misbilling is... Um, Things were missed on the itemized bill, and then the insurance company overlooks it and pays it. Like, for example, things go onto the list and say, you're in the hospital, or let's scratch the hospital and just go, let's say it's a doctor's office. While you're in the doctor's office, it says they administered aspirin. 
but you didn't get aspirin. That wasn't you. And so, but it's showing up on the bill and here's the, the night one pill was 20 bucks or whatever it might be, whatever the, the master charge is. And so it's being passed on you because scrutinize that because the insurance company missed it because they have an automated system if the bills are small enough and it save you the money and save the insurance company money. Most people don't care because the insurance company is paying a lot of these claims out there. And so since a bigger purse is covering it, then there's no reason to do it or even worry about it. However, it's going to cost us all in the long run. So just look for our missed items by the insurance company. Also missed items by you or um, the provider. Just you don't need to be an accountant to go through this. It just means me needs to make sense. One, there's an invoice going in uh, and then a bill coming out. We just have to make sure it all matches. Be careful while we're billing because providers will accidentally send you an extra invoice, kind of like in the example I just gave. But the issue comes in is sometimes they're trying to stick you with the bill and the insurance company doesn't know about it. There's going to be third-party people or provider's office trying to send you bills, and that's where some medical fraud uh, claims come in. And so you have to be careful if somebody even saw you, if they're even part of the whole deal, you have to watch some of this stuff. And sometimes you don't know who, who's watching or looking at you. You could be in the hospital and these attending physicians come by. You don't know who they are or who they work for. But uh, in a nutshell, as long as the insurance company is allocating those claims, um, for the most part, they should be safe because the insurance company has registration with the provider. And so there's some type of continuity there versus somebody just sending you a bill. So just be careful of that. The biggest thing is just ask the question. So if the bill comes in and you're not sure what's going on, not only call the provider, but also call the insurance company. Ask them somebody to walk you through that. Just by asking enough questions, you could figure it out. It is intimidating. It is hard at times, but you definitely have to just start asking the questions to make sure you know which direction and if something's correct. And then also challenge them because in some cases, the billing office is too lazy to do their job and you have to force them to do it. And so if you're not paying attention to these bills, you may have to overpay on a portion because they're billing you for it. But if you call and challenge them and ask them to process it or reprocess it, or do something different, push them for it. Um, sure, there's an element of respect, and so you don't want to get all crazy on them and have other issues, but you want to at least ask the questions to the point where you push them hard enough to at least get a different result, or even if it comes out to be the same result, at least push them to get those answers for you. Hey, gang, ever wonder what it's like to be a small business owner? It's confusing. Weird expenses coming out of nowhere, and when you throw in health insurance, forget it. Nobody understands how that works. If you own a business, big or small, it's one of the biggest expenses you have all year long. And yet, we all wait until open enrollment at the end of the year, and then we think to ourselves, next year, next year I'll get a jump on it. And then it's another year of paying way too much. If you're a business owner, big or small, HR representative that wants to impress the boss, give Butch Zemar of Elite Benefits of America a call. Save yourself or your boss thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars a year. Reach out to Butch right now, 708-535-3006, or shoot him an email, butch at elitebenefits.net. And be sure to check out the Zmar podcast. Don't wait till the last minute. Put Butch Zmar to work for you now. One of the topics that I try to bring up the business owners out there and it happens on a regular basis uh, and of course financial assets is very important to everybody and insuring those assets is even more important because if it's not insured correctly it could cost a fortune when it comes to just 
traditional life insurance planning, a lot of people lean on their financial advisor or some other life insurance agent, and that's fine. And uh, simple term is great. If you get anything more than that, obviously just get the information from the advisor you're working for. But, you know, I, I want to take the conversation to a different level. We, we All the things we insure for when it comes to financial protection is if we live too long or we die too soon or we get sick in the middle. When the concern comes up that you live too long, that's where financial advisors and financial planning come into play. We do very minimum. We outsource that. It's not something we do on a, um, on a common basis. But the concern comes in is if you die too soon, right? So premature death is definitely an issue. You lose that source of income from that uh, for that household or business for that matter. And that's the angle we're going to go is business. And then what if you get too sick in the middle? What do you do? You can't, you, you can't go to work in the same capacity that you did. And of course, that's what disability is. But this conversation that I want to have today is more towards the business owner, not necessarily any individual getting short-term disability or long-term disability or even life insurance or group life for that matter. Even though I always recommend employer or owner or executives should always have a standard life insurance outside of any company, even though it's cheap through the company, don't depend on that because life can change and you may lose that benefit. So let's talk about the business owner or key people in a company. I use a concept called one-way buy-sell or a disability buy-sell or some combination of that. It doesn't necessarily have to be a buy-sell agreement, but it could be a income-related thing to help finance a way through something that you were somehow predicting that it may occur in the future, uh, but hoping that it never did. Uh, so I'm going to walk through some of that. So why do we do planning um, for life insurance anyways? Most of the time, it's income replacement or some type of debt-related issue. Uh, and then if we solve those issues and there's still extra funds to buy more life insurance, we talk about inheritance and charity work. And then, of course, taxes, because um, there's always tax in the end, even though we paid taxes on that money to begin with. And so from a personal level, usually it stops right there. The conversation starts a little bit of income replacement, but they're not consuming items. Maybe there's a you know mortgage that has... $300,000 left on it and I'm making up numbers. And maybe by the time you go through this whole analysis, you agree that $500,000 worth of life insurance is plenty for your family to go ahead and survive. And actually, uh, a lot of people don't even have life insurance, let alone have 100000 And a lot of people that think they're doing a really good job have $500,000 worth of life insurance. The reality is that's not enough anyways. And that's a whole nother topic. And maybe we get some other life insurance experts on this as a guest and have that roundtable discussion. But because $500,000 to replace somebody in a household is not enough. Um, there's too much at stake. And of course, future expenses that are anticipated. And of course, leverage. Uh, you're not going to have a, anybody be able to save enough money, even through financial products, to leverage the amount that you pay for life insurance and, and the rate of return. But let's take that con same conversation from a personal level. And let's move it to a business level. And let's tie it to revenue. So income replacement for the business. So a lot of business owners out there, or even just CFOs or C CEOs or executive suites in general, their only worth to the company is how much revenue is being driven inside that company. Uh, it's sure there's a net worth and there's a whole another topic. Well, let's just tie it to revenue. So, and if something were to go your entire life and and you created this asset and you made income along the way, and then you decide to retire, and your nest egg is to sell the company off and make your millions and move on in retirement. And that's in a perfect world. And so we all know that the perfect world doesn't really exist. 
and we know why there's all these turn of events that occur throughout the years. You might have had a heyday here, um, here and there, but uh, at the end of the day, things go up and down, accidents occur, life changes at a moment's notice. By tying into revenue, if we were to sell your business today, what is that worth? Is it worth one times revenue, two times revenue? Is it based on assets, whatever it might be? What is that value today while you're in full health and able to fully operate that company? And it could be multiple owners, not just one. And so this conversation needs to be had for, with all the executives or at least the owners. But when now we're, we're, we're tying it based on a belief of what you think, we, we, if it's big enough, we may have to get financial statements and authorization and all, all kinds of other stuff. But for general planning for most businesses throughout the entire country, this is very simple, oversimplified planning. And even if you just look at it and say, well, I'm the working arm, it's a service-based company, it's only one times revenue. Okay, what is that mark, right? And this is outside of personal planning because the reality is something happens to you, your surviving spouse or um, heirs like your children are not going to be able to sell the, the company for the value that you think it might be worth. So what you might want to do is just get the life insurance in place so that you do get the, the, the one times revenue payout for uh, the family or whoever it might be. And it could be just your spouse, but this obviously is step one to the the conversation of a full buy-sell agreement, which gets in the contracts and partners. And that's a, a whole nother topic that I think we, we will discuss at some point. And so figuring out what that company is worth, figure, go out and getting a policy to make sure that matches up so that you could have the asset already paid for to pass on. And so if something where it occurs, that, that'll be a triggering event, cash comes out of the policy, goes to the beneficiary designated, it'll probably be your surviving spouse, it could be the children, whoever it might be. If you turn around and pick up the pieces of the company and, uh, and try to sell it after the fact, it's a bonus, right? So anything above and beyond that's just gonna be bonus. So you're able to get full price, great. You pay your capital gains, you move on. Otherwise, there's a state of tax related to your estate. And so if you had to pay tax, at least you could sell the company and help pay for those um, taxes and still have what you anticipated when you originally did your planning, saying that you're going to sell the company when if something happened to you prematurely or when you retire for that matter. But usually it doesn't go all the way to the end like that. But also if something happens in between, you become disabled, you get too sick to uh, or hurt to work. The idea is to transfer some of the or, or all the income back to the business. So you're not starving the business. They could replace you for the period of time you're recovering or forever for that matter. And so you could take an income and actually pay yourself the income while the business still thrives by replacing yourself. And this is important because otherwise a lot of business owners, they become sicker, they get hurt, they draw too much out of the business, and the business ends up dying and they end up going broke or figuring out something else. And so... You would collect the, DI, the disability insurance as payments um, in lieu of the income, or you could actually, if you had partners, you could actually use this as payment arrangements to do a buyout of the contract. But again, in a legal term or a legal a aspect, you definitely need verbiage in a contract. If it's just between you and your spouse, the only thing that should be written out is uh, your trust or uh, living will. And of course, there's advisors for that and to make sure that all these payouts are, are planned accordingly and executed to the degree that you wish for your planning.